So in the United Kingdom, they are actually doing a lot of research uh, in an area of loneliness. Uh, and, and I know that I experience this every once in a while where I'm just, I feel alone even though, you know, I have a lot of people in my household. All right? uh, it can still be kind of lonely because there's only so much you can say to a, a two-year-old, right? All right, so sometimes I can feel this, uh, but there are, there are extreme cases of loneliness. I was reading a uh, New York Times article uh, the other day, and in it they were talking about uh, that the UK has actually set up a call center. And, and so if you feel like you're lonely and you just want to talk to somebody, you can call this number and just start talking to them. And uh, one of the ladies that called was an 88-year-old lady who had just had her birthday and and as they were talking with the person, the, the, the person that was listening was just asked the question, oh, well, you had your birthday, you know, who'd you celebrate it with? And her response was, no one. You know, 88 years, and, and she was celebrating it with no one. And in fact, the reason why she was even calling the call center is because she hadn't talked to anybody in over a week. You know, so loneliness is one of those things that, that can be devastating. Some of the research that they're finding over there is that uh, when you put two mice together, uh, they have dopamine that just starts to, to flow through their brains. Right? And then if you separate it, that dopamine stops. So just being with people causes your mind to be happy, if you will. Uh, dopamine is very important in life. And so there's, there's a lot of things to uh, being with people and not being lonely. And so today we're, we're going to look at something that loneliness that Elijah felt. Uh, and, and so we want to kind of introduce this idea of, of loneliness. And so we, we want you to be aware of that. And so we're going to be continuing the story of Elijah. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 19. And so if you have your Bibles, you can uh, open up with there. This is uh, my favorite chapter in the life of Elijah. Uh, the uh, Bible uh, does not hide uh, the humanity of its characters. And, and I think in chapter 19 of Elijah, we see his humanity shown in a very clear picture and something that I think uh, is very much relatable uh, for us. And so we're going to look at this chapter. Uh, we want to kind of uh, make sure that we understand our background of what's happened so far uh, with narrative stories. You, you need to know what's happening in order because it's a continuation of this story, if you will. All right, so Elijah, he came onto the scene in, in chapter 17. Uh, it's in the northern kingdom. He was a prophet of God sent up there uh, to kind of pronounce judgment. They Israelites had turned to the Baals. Uh, they were killing the prophets of the Lord. And so Elijah comes onto the scene and says, hey, guess what? Now our God's going to prove that he's more powerful than your God of storms. And he says it's not going to rain. And for three and a half years, it does not rain. All right, and and uh, Elijah is provided for in this time period. Uh, he goes uh, at the end of that period. He calls to Ahab, the king of Israel. He says, let's gather the people to Mount Carmel. Uh, we read last week in chapter 18, this battle of Mount Carmel, if you will, where the prophets of Baal, the, the 450 of them, uh, cried out to their God and nothing happened. No one was there. No one paid attention. No one was listening. All right, and then Elijah, the one guy, calls out to the Lord and he uh, causes fire to come and consume. Now, we didn't read the very end of that chapter, uh, but essentially what happens is uh, Elijah, he, he's done this great sign. He's, he's called out to God, and the people of, of Israel, they fall prostrate. So they, they fall 
uh, on their ground face down. And they start to cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah takes this moment to say, okay, if the Lord is God, according to the Old Testament, these guys are false prophets. So what do we do with false prophets? Oh yeah, in the Old Testament, you kill them. So he calls the Israelites who are prostrate and said, these guys are false prophets. It's time to kill them now. And so they kill uh, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. And there's this gruesome scene that, that sometimes we're like, wow, that is bad. But we have to remember what they're doing. You know, they are being false prophets. This was something that was not okay in the Old Testament. All right, they're... they're uh, They're turning people away from the Lord to these idols. And more than that, if we remember at the very beginning of chapter 18, we're told about Jezebel and what she is doing. And and we're told that she is going out, finding the prophets of the Lord and having them killed. And so this is kind of uh, a a close to this chapter uh, that started off with the idea that the prophets of the Lord are being killed. Well, now at the end, it's the prophets of Baal that are being killed. And so that kind, of, that kind of sets the scene for, for chapter 19. It's the background. We have to remember that Elijah had these things happen. And we have to remember that King Ahab was there. All right? He wa- witnessed all of it, and he did not stop them. Okay, So here's what happens in, in verse 1 of 19. Uh, Ahab, uh, he returns home, and he tells Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets by the sword. Can you imagine what type of... Of conversation that would be. Alright, Jezeb, if we look at the life of Ahab, Ahab, he is not the man of the house, if you will. Alright, he, uh, he's actually a very weak king when it comes to his wife. He was wicked, he led the Israelites astray, but in behind the scenes, his wife is doing a lot of the, the political maneuvering. All right, there's a story a little bit later uh, of a guy by the name of Naboth, and, and he has a vineyard. And Ahab, he's going about his country, and he sees his vineyard, and it's beautiful, and it has lots of, it's producing a lot of wine. And, and, and Ahab says to Naboth, I want to buy that from you. And, and Naboth says, well, you know, this has been in our family. I don't really want to sell it. It's mine. You know, you can't have it. And so Ahab goes home, and he begins to mope. Can you ever imagine a king moping? And he's just sitting there like, woe is me, I'm the king, but I want this vineyard and it's not there. And Jezebel finally comes in and says, why are you acting like this? And she gets on him and he says, well, I want this vineyard, but he won't sell it to me. And she says, whatever. And so Jezebel actually goes and she writes a letter in the name of Ahab and she sends it to the elders of Naboth's city, the town that he was in, and he, she tells the elders, hey, throw a feast. When Naboth sits, put two scoundrels uh, next to him on either side, and have them say that Naboth cursed not only God, but the king as well. And you have to have, uh, in the Old Testament, you had to have two witnesses to, to, to accuse somebody of something. And so they do this, and, and when that happens, the punishment for cursing the king and, and God was death. And so the, she had the elders kill Naboth. And so then Jezebel, after all these things has happened, goes over to Ahab and says, hey, the guy's dead, your vineyard's here. All right? So behind the scenes, Jezebel is the one that's controlling the, the things. And so Ahab, he goes with Elijah to uh, Mount Carmel, thinking that he's probably going to win this battle. And, and as everything unfolds, and as they're killing the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, 
Ahab just watches. I mean, he doesn't stop them. He's the king. He could have easily said, no, no, we're not going to actually do that. All right, but he doesn't because he's weak. All right, and so he goes back home, and he has to tell Jezebel, hey, you know, those prophets that were eating at your table, uh, you know, they're not going to be around anymore. All right, and, and can you imagine that story? And Jezebel, she doesn't take it very good. Okay, so here's what she does in, in, verses, in verse 2. She says, uh, we're told that Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to say to him, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So she essentially sends a prophet or a messenger to Elijah and says, I'm going to kill you now. All right. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. All right. And so that's kind of kind of what's setting the scene. OK, Elijah, uh, he uh, uh, has just been threatened by Jezebel. And it's not just a threat. It's not just empty promises. Right. Because Jezebel has already shown in the past that she has the power to do this. She's killed the prophets of the Lord. She had Naboth killed. If she wants Elijah dead, Elijah is going to be dead. All right. And so so this is not an empty thing. And so Elijah does what any of us would have done. He runs away. I mean, when the queen who has the power to kill you says you're going to die, you would run too. And so he runs away in verse 3. And so, so he's running away. Uh, verse 3 says he was afraid. He ran for his life. He ran all the way to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there, and he went a day's journey into the wilderness. All right, and so uh, he, he just kind of, you know, runs away because of this fear that he has. And, and, and you got to kind of ask this question of not just why is he afraid, but, but why is he so afraid of Jezebel? I mean, he's just proved that the prophets of Baal were nothing and that God was more powerful than this other God that they're worshiping, but he, he still has this fear of what's happening. And I think sometimes we can kind of understand this. We can relate to this. We can get into this kind of mindset as well. You know, life is hard. I mean, life is difficult. Life sometimes pushes on us to the point that, that we're so afraid of what tomorrow is going to bring because we don't know what it's going to bring. You know, maybe sometimes we're afraid of going into work. Maybe sometimes we're afraid of going uh, to that party or whatever. We're, we're just afraid of what is coming in life. And so Elijah, he runs away, and I think a lot of us, at times in our lives, we can get to the place where we would rather run away too. We just don't have the means like Elijah has. And we have responsibilities that we can't just drop. All right, but Elijah, he runs, and he goes, and we're told that he goes all the way from Mount Carmel. It's, it's up, I'm going to do it this way. It's up here, okay, in the, in the western, north, northwestern most part of Israel, and he runs all the way down, all the way through the country of Israel, all the way down to Judah, to the southernmost town of Beersheba. And then we're told that he leaves his servants behind, and he goes off, continuing south into the Negev, uh, into the south, southern deserts uh, for a day's journey. And while he's there, this is, this is what he does. Uh, the second part of verse 4, he says uh, that uh, he came to a broom bush, which I don't know what that is. You can probably look it up somewhere. Uh, he sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush, and he fell asleep. 
And Elijah, he is in such a bad place. You know, we're, we're going to find out why in a little bit. He's going to actually have a conversation with God and, and tell God why he's feeling this way. But at this moment, you know, the question we have to ask, looking at his life, is why? I mean, he just had this great success on Mount Carmel. Like this mountaintop experience, literally, where he proves to everyone what he's been saying all along. You know, his whole job has been to tell people, the Lord is God and you need to believe it. And he gets to Mount Carmel and he has this great experience where the Israelites fall prostrate and they exclaim, the Lord is God and Elijah should be in victory mode, right? Yes, you finally get it. But he feels defeated instead. Why? No, honestly, I, I get this way at times. You know, when, when life hits us so hard that even if we are having success, it feels like defeat. I mean, as a minister, I feel Elijah. I am with him here. There are times where, where we spend hours and hours in ministry and we're doing these things. And even when it's successful, there are times where we get done with everything. We're just like, man. Why do I feel awful? And I, I, I don't have an answer as to why Elijah feels this way, even with this success, because all I know is, is I can relate because this is how I feel at times. And maybe you feel the same way at times with you. Maybe it's with your children and you worked and worked and worked hours putting your life and energy into your children. And even if you're having success, sometimes you can just feel defeated. Maybe it's at work and you're working and working and things just are not rolling the way that you want it to and you can feel defeated. And sometimes even when it is successful, you feel defeated. You know, I, I don't know why these things happen. Maybe in your life it's an illness and something's coming on you and you don't, you don't even know how do, you're going to function tomorrow because of what you're feeling. You know, it can be defeating when life hits you in the gut like this. And I, I, don't, I don't know why. You know, Elijah just says, you know what, I'm done. And sometimes we can throw up our hands like him and say, I'm done with this, whatever it is. And we can relate here, I think, with Elijah. We felt it. Elijah, in this moment, is weary, and he's crying out to God, God, end it. Let me die. But even though Elijah wants to give up, God is not ready to give up for him. In, in uh, the second part of verse 5, we're told that an angel comes, and he touches Elijah, and he says, get up and eat. And Elijah looks around, and he sees uh, this bread that's been breaked on coals and some water. And so he gets up, he eats it, and then we're told that he goes and lays back down. He says, thanks for the food. I'm, I'm going to still sit here, and, and I want to die still. And so uh, he's just not getting it that God has something for him. And so the angel comes again uh, in, in uh, uh, 
verse 7, and, and he says, you need to get up, you need to eat, you need to go on a journey, your journey is still far away. And so Elijah, he eats some more of the bread that's been given to him, and he heads all the way to Mount Horeb. Uh, Mount Horeb has another name, it's Mount Sinai, right? Uh, this is the mountain where all kinds of things have happened in the Old Testament. It's, it's an important mountain, we have to understand this, okay? All right, this is where Moses was in Midian, and there was a burning bush, and God reveals himself, all right? It's the mountain that when the Israelites were coming out of Egypt that Moses takes them to to worship God. It's where the covenant was given. It's where God was given the Ten or Moses was given the Ten Commandments by God. It's where uh, a lot of significant things, if, if, if anything, it's where everything started with the Israelites. God showing himself God showing the covenants where the Israelites said, yes, we will be your covenant people. It's where everything starts, and that's where Elijah goes. Now, before we continue this next part, we need to remember what God has been showing Elijah through his life. When, God, uh, when Elijah came over onto the scene, he, he says that God's going to cause no rain to happen. And the entire reason why God is doing this is that he's showing not just to the Israelites, but to Elijah as well, that he has power over Israel. He was still the Lord, the, still the God of Israel. Even though they had broken his covenant, he was still their God. And he had more power over, over everything that, than what he, they could even imagine. He, he causes the birds to feed Elijah. And he has this brook allow him to drink. And God, in those moments, are showing Elijah, Elijah, I have power over creation. I can command birds to bring you food. All right, that's really cool. I've never had that happen. All right, he has that power to do it. All right, and then when he's told to go to Sidon, he goes all the way up to Sidon, and Sidon's not even in Israel. And still, God is controlling the weather there. And he's controlling this, this uh, uh, food for this widow, this flour, and this oil. He's controlling uh, whether or not this son could be raised to life. You know, God is showing this woman and Elijah that he has power over all of the world. Not just over the Israelites, over all nations. Like, that's how powerful our God is. On Mount Carmel, you have this great scene where God, sh again, shows, I am God. I am the Lord who controls all things. And so Elijah's been, been witnessing all these things, and it's going to play a factor into this scene that we see on Horeb. Here's how the scene goes, starting in uh, verse 9, the second part of it. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. Uh, he says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replies, I have been very zealous for you, Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. they put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. So here we get the reason why Elijah is in the desert crying out to God, God, take my life. And the reason is he feels alone. When God is looking at Elijah and says, why are you here? In Horeb, it's, it's way down in the south. Elijah, I've called you to be a prophet to Israel up here in the north. What are you doing here? This isn't where you're supposed to be. 
This isn't what you're supposed to be doing. And it's not that God didn't know the answer. I think God's wanting uh, Elijah to think about, why are you here? And Elijah's answer is, God, have you been watching? Have you seen how the Israelites have broken your covenant? Have you seen how faithful I have been? Have you seen them tear down your altars? Have you seen them find your prophets and kill them? God, I am the only prophet left, and I am by myself, and I cannot do it anymore because they are coming after me now. And you can feel the pain that Elisha is going through. You can feel the loneliness in his words. God, I'm it. That's all. Once I'm gone, there will not be anybody. They've broken everything they said they would follow. God, I am it. And then God, in reply to that, says in verse 11, Go out, stand on the mountain, in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And, and we kind of need to think about something that happened in Exodus 33. When Moses goes on to the mountain, and he's spending time with God, and Moses says, God, I want to see you. And God says to him, if you see me, my face, you'll die, so you can't do that. But I tell you what, I'll pass by. And as I pass by, you can look out and get a glimpse of my back, and that's what I can do for you. And so God takes Moses and he hides him in a cleft of the rock, it says, and he, he guards him there with his hand. And as he walks by, then Moses is able to peek out and be in the presence of the Lord. And here in, in 1 Kings 19, we have Elijah hiding out in a cave, a, a cleft of a rock, if you will. And God says, I am going to pass by. And so we have this... Uh, kind of reflection of something that's happened in the past that God is doing yet, yet again. And here's how it happens at the second part of verse 11. It says, Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart, shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he put his cloak over his face, and he went out. And he stood at the mouth of the cave. And, and, and what we see happen here is four different things. All right, we have a wind that shakes the earth, so, so maybe a tornado, I don't know. All right, it shakes the, the, the mountain that, that Elijah's in. We have an earthquake that probably, again, shakes the mountain. We have a fire that rages. And then we have this whisper. And what I think God is doing in this moment is he's showing Elijah his power again. I've already shown this to you once, but here it is yet again, Elijah. I have the power over the wind. I have the power over the earth. I have the power over fire. Earlier in the story, I have the power over water. And what we see is God having power over all of these elements of the world. He is Lord over all creation. And what I think he's saying to Elijah in this moment, is this, Elijah, I understand you are lonely, and I understand that they have broken their covenants, and I have the power to do whatever it is to bring them back. I have the power to, to shake the earth and swallow them, if you will. All right, I have that power to destroy them for what they have done, but yet I have chosen not to display that power, 
but to come in a whisper. See, our God, even though He is powerful and mighty, He is gracious. And He chooses not to destroy the Israelites for breaking His covenant, but rather He chooses to try to bring their hearts back to Him, to turn them from where they're going to back to him, to cause them to repent and return to him. And even though, Elijah, I understand you're going through this thing and I have the power to change it, I'm not always going to do that the way you want it. And this may seem not that helpful in the moments that we go through, recognizing that our God is powerful enough to change whatever the situation is that we find ourselves in, no matter where we're at, whether we're lonely like Elijah, whether we're dealing with children, whether we're dealing with our work, whether we're dealing with an illness, we know that we have a God that can fix all the problems that we have, but that's not necessarily how God's going to work. Sometimes he works differently through whispers. And I don't know why Elijah comes out at this moment. Maybe his interaction with God has him recognizing that, that, that this is God, his presence. Maybe he feels it and he goes out. And what we have in the rest of this is, is a repeat of the conversation. God looks at Elijah and says, what are you doing here? I mean, it's the same question as before. And the same reply from Elijah, God They've I'm the, been faithful to you. They've broken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed the prophets. Oh, Lord, I'm the only one left, and they're here for me as well. And we have this conversation repeated, and God finally just says, Elijah, listen, I have something for you. All right, in verse 15 through 17, he, he looks at Elijah, and he says, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. After that, uh, anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And then anoint Elijah, son of Shaphat, over Abel, Maho- uh, from Abel, Mahola, to succeed you as prophets. And he says, Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Jehu. And again, God is showing the power that he has over Israel and the power he has over the world. You know, he is still the God of Israel. Even though, Elijah, you feel like they've broken the covenant and that I am no longer their God, I am still their God whether they know it or not. And so you're going to go and you're going to anoint the next king of Israel. Because I get to choose that. Because I am in charge. And he says, more than that, I am the king over the rest of the world as well. And so you're going to go to Aram, uh, this, this nation above Israel that was actually, uh, would end up causing a lot of devastation to the nation of Israel itself, to God's people. And he says, you're going to go there and you're going to anoint the next king of that. All right, you're going to be in charge of that. Because I am in charge of them. I am their Lord and God, whether they know it or not, as well. And he says, listen, I know that you feel like you have not been very successful, but there is somebody that you need to meet. His name is Elisha. And you're going to anoint him as your next uh, prophet after you. And even though you felt like you have not succeeded, even though you're, you're working over the last three and a half years has not produced the amount of fruit that you think it should have produced, there are some in the next generation that have been listening to you, Elijah, and they know me as God. 
So you're going to go to Elisha, this next guy that's going to come after me, and you're going to anoint him because he's going to take your place. Elijah, you may feel like a failure, but your work has done great things. And then God says something to Elijah that I think is the most powerful thing here. He says, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And so the very last thing that God says to Elijah on Mount Horeb is this. You are not alone. I mean, why did you come to the desert? Why did you come all the way to Mount Horeb? It's because you feel like you're all by yourself. But Elijah, you're not alone. There are 7,000 other people. And I know in the grand scheme of things, this isn't a lot, but there are 7,000 other people who still follow me, who have not broken my covenants. You are not alone. And this is what I think we need to get out of this. A lot of times in life, we get to this place where we are like Elijah, where we feel all alone, where we are just ready to give up on life. And what we need to know in those moments is that we are not alone. There are people who are going through what you're going through, who have gone through what you've gone, you are going through right now, and they want to share with you. You are not alone. Paul says in, in Galatians that as Christians, we are to bear with one another, to help carry each other's loads. And what we need to recognize within the church is that there are so many people, not only within our congregation, but at the church at large, who wants to be there with you and who wants to carry whatever it is that you're carrying along the way. But a lot of times as Americans, we don't like to share that with people. And I think what we need to do is be more open and more recognizing that there are other people that want to come alongside us and help us along in these tough moments of life, and we need to be willing to tell people what we're feeling, what we're facing. And when we do that, I think we will see this truth that we find in the life of Elijah here, that we are not alone. So whatever you're going through, Whatever you're feeling like right now, whether you're feeling like giving up in life in whatever aspect, know that you do not have to do this by yourself. There's a God who loves you, and he has reserved people to help you, to come alongside you, to help you through these tough moments. And if you'll allow him to do that, he will change the way you feel in miraculous ways. You're not alone. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for Elijah and, and his humanity that is shown in the chapter 19 of 1 Kings. Uh, I'm grateful because I can totally relate to what he is going through. I understand these moments of feeling like a failure, even when it seems like things are going so well. And Father, when those moments come upon and I cannot get 
the next step in front of the other. I pray that you come alongside me like you did Elijah, that you continue to provide for me like you did Elijah, and that you just tell me the truth that I am not alone. That I have brothers and sisters who want to help me, who want to come alongside me and to give me their strength. Father, help me to, to, to have the courage to speak the things I'm going through and the struggles that I'm facing so that I can face this with others and not face it by myself. Thank you, God, for showing Elijah so much, for telling him this great truth that, that he is not having to do this by himself. And I pray, God, that uh, we will not do things by ourselves, but that we will trust that you have people for us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.